your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're continuing through this Gospel of Luke. A few more chapters. It's only six or eight more months. Just kidding. But we are here on the night of Jesus' betrayal. And our passage is Luke 22, verses 47 through 53. Please follow along with me. There came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's pray. Father God, this is your holy word. We come, Lord, as thirsty children to the well of your righteousness, to the well of your truth, to the well, Lord, of your goodness and mercy to us. Every one of us in this room is a sinner. Every one of us, Lord, in this room is in need of Christ. Even we who have believed, Lord, how quickly we can let our flesh reign. So, Father God, speak. May your Holy Spirit move us, Lord. May our fellowship with Christ be deepened. May our understanding of his person and righteousness and grace grow. May our hatred of sin also, Lord, grow. May Christ be all in all. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, a kiss is a very personal thing. And I dare say that, I dare say that every single one of us in this room participates in kissing in some form or fashion. Right? Even in Scripture, we see husbands and wives kissing. We see parents and children kissing. We see grandparents and grandchildren kissing one another. Relatives and close friends kissing when they meet, when they say goodbye, when they are joyful together, and when they are sorrowful together. Just next week, when you celebrate Thanksgiving, many of us are going to gather with family, and when we greet those family members, we are going to kiss them on the cheek and hug them, and, and, and you know, they're, they're going to kiss us and say goodbye at the end of the time together. We know historically that in most Eastern cultures, Middle Eastern cultures in particular, they would kiss each other on the cheek when meeting and departing, both cheeks, a practice that continues in many places today. And let's not forget that five separate times in the New Testament, we are told by the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter to greet one another with a holy kiss. Five times. Now, I know nothing makes a room full of Reformed Baptists more uncomfortable 
then telling them that Scripture commands them to regularly kiss one another, but it's there. Kisses of this nature are a sign of affection, they are a symbol of endearment, and they are also an expression of love. Knowing this, knowing this makes the idea of betraying someone with a kiss all the more despicable. And it is woefully despicable that the Savior of the world was betrayed with a kiss. Here in Luke 22, we come back to a story that we know well. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just a stone's throw from his disciples. He is in agony over the wrath that he is about to endure at the hands of men and at the hands of God. Yet he is firmly and faithfully determined to submit to his Father's will and accomplish the redemption of his people. The path to the cross that now lies before him is littered with human sin and drama and misunderstanding and anger, but we are going to see him navigate it with truth and compassion and holy resolve, learning along the way how deeply God loves even those who hate him. So let's consider first the wicked betrayal of Judas. The wicked betrayal of Judas At verse 47, when it says, while he was still speaking, it's referring to what Jesus said just in the previous verse. Look at verse 46. Jesus came to the disciples and he said, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He was reminding his men of the importance of being diligent in prayer. But just as Jesus spoke these words to them, Judas and his mob arrived at the scene. Now notice that Luke rather blithely records that Jesus was one of the twelve. This simple notation is given to emphasize the fact that the one betraying Jesus was one of his closest associates and friends. Judas arrived with a great multitude, a large cohort that was sent by the chief priests and the elders. These were the same men who had gathered a few days earlier in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, to plot how to seize and kill Jesus. No doubt, when Judas left the Passover meal earlier that evening, he went right back to these evil men and offered to take them directly to Jesus. And think of the perspective of the religious leaders. They had seen how Jesus handled himself when he cleared the temple of the merchants and the money changers. He was a man who who could demonstrate a strength. They also likely anticipated that Jesus' disciples would put up a fight. And so they wanted to be prepared to take him with a significant show of force. John chapter 18 verse 3 even tells us that Judas went having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees and they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This whole group could have numbered from several dozen to to up to a hundred. And they showed up there in the Garden of Gethsemane ready for a fight. It was very dark out at this time of night, and many of the men might not have known Jesus by sight, so Judas had to show them in a very deliberate way which one was Jesus, and he chose to do it with a kiss. A kiss that represented a special act of respect and affection. It was a sign of homage to greet someone with a kiss at this time. So Judas was using a sign of love and respect to intentionally dishonor and betray Jesus. He arrived with his mob. He drew near to Jesus. And look at verse 48. 
But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? What a convicting question, right? What a convicting question that cuts right to the heart of Judas's hypocrisy. As I noted earlier in the sermon, Scripture, in the series rather, Scripture never reveals to us exactly what Judas' motives were in betraying Jesus. The most likely one is that Jesus did not live up to his personal expectations of what the Messiah would be. Judas assumed he was following a man who was going to lead him into a position of great power and influence. And when he saw that this was not going to be the case, he turned on Jesus. When Jesus revealed at the Last Supper earlier that evening that he knew Judas was going to betray him, to betray him, it likely made Judas all the more angry. And let's not forget what the earlier passage said. Judas is literally possessed by the devil. He is a tool of Satan on this dreadful evening, and his despicable words and actions prove it. He walked straight up to Jesus and betrayed him with a contemptible sign of honor and affections, and affection. Now, as we consider Judas, it provides an opportunity for us to pause and to weigh the sinfulness of the human heart. The human heart is capable of, of such hardness that it can be directly confronted with the truth of God as well as the absolute proof of that truth and still act in complete spitefulness to God. Indeed, what we see going on with Judas is exactly what Hebrews chapter 6 warns us about. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning of verse 4, says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That is Judas. For over three years, he tasted of the glories of the Messiah. He tasted and witnessed the power of the King, and yet he still determined in his heart as he was possessed by Satan to betray his Lord. And his actions here lead to a question for us. He took a sign of of affection and used it hypocritically to betray his Lord. And we should ask ourselves, are there good gifts of God that we take and twist and use for betrayal and cursing rather than blessing and love? You know, as a small boy... Before my parents were divorced, there was a time when I watched my father bring my mother in for a hug, but it wasn't to show her love, it was to whisper threats in her ear. Have you ever done that as a spouse or as a parent to your child? As those who sometimes seek control, we can take financial gifts that would be a blessing to our loved ones or to our church, and we can use the lure or the gift of those finances to manipulate and force people to bend to our desires. Well, if you don't do what I want here at this church, then I'm going to give this large offering to this other church over here. Or, or I'm going to cut you off if you don't do what I say. Or, or I'm going to cut you out of my will if you don't meet my wishes. Or perhaps you've had a friend or a, or a co-worker who threatened to end your friendship if you did not lie for them or give them something they demanded. 
You know, in marriage, we can even take signs of physical affection. We can even take the gift of marital intimacy and use it to manipulate or betray our spouse. Oh, no. I'm not going to so much as touch you if I don't get what I want. Brothers and sisters, does, does Jesus ever use his blessings to betray us or curse us or manipulate us? When Jesus was, was on the cross dying a torturous death, did he look out at those who were mocking him and say, oh, well, you know, I'm doing this, but not you, not for you, and not for you. Oh, and you over there, not for you either. Did Jesus put any conditions on us before going to the cross to die for sins? No. Absolutely no. Jesus laid down his life when we were yet his enemies. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, being mocked, being jeered, Forsaken even by his own men? What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His heart, even as he was being murdered, was to pray for the forgiveness of his murderers. He is the one who said the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So brothers and sisters, when we think of Christ, we realize that his blessings, his sacrifice for our sins have never been and will never be contingent upon us meeting some selfish expectations. Jesus says, you can have everything. You can have all of me. You can have all that I have provided. I lay it all down before you. Just believe. Just trust. It's that simple. Believe and you shall be saved. Believe, and you shall inherit eternal life. Believe, and you shall be with me for all of eternity. Believe, and I will abide with you as you abide with me. Just believe. The affections of Christ, brothers and sisters, are always true, always full, always sincere, always compassionate. Even when we fail and fall short, even when we don't obey his commands, even when we don't meet his expectations, still he loves. He would never betray with a kiss. And you know what? In him, by his grace, because he changes us, our affections can be sincere and compassionate as well. I, I, I'm just like you. I, I hurt people sometimes with my sin. I am not a perfect pastor. And this side of glory, I won't be. And you are not a perfect member of this congregation. This side of heaven, you won't be. We're going to hurt one another. We're going to let one another down. We're going to fail one another. But the grace of Christ covers our sin. The big grace of Christ binds our hearts together in love. The grace of Christ enables us to, to forgive, to re-engage in sincerity, to, to be reconciled, to have compassion. He enables that in the church. He enables that in our families. Brothers and sisters, let us draw near to him. That takes me to my second point, where we see the prideful impulsiveness of Peter. 
the prideful impulsiveness of Peter. We go now to verse 49, and it's obvious here in verse 49 that the men were still wrestling with how to interpret what Jesus had told them just a little earlier in the evening. He said they were to sell their cloak and get a sword. But when they showed him that they already had two swords, Jesus effectively said to them, that's enough about that. So when these men saw the crowd, they saw the mob that had come to arrest Jesus and take him away, they weren't sure what to do. Lord, shall we strike with a sword? They ask in verse 49. In other words, Lord, is now when we go to battle for you? Do, do you want us to stand up and fight Jesus? Is that what we should do? But while the men are asking this question, there was one disciple among them that didn't wait for the answer to that question. He pulled out a sword and he went to swinging. Guess who that was? Right? As we have seen in some previous texts, Luke often gives us the most streamlined version of events in order to make a specific point. If we look in the parallel account in John's gospel, we find a few more details. In John 18, verse 10, it says, Simon Peter, surprise, surprise, therefore having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Now, as we talked about earlier, Peter was wrapped up in his own pride. He was, he was ready to take on the entire mob, if need be, to defend Christ. He was ready to go out in a blaze of glory if that was necessary. And the fact that he cut off Malchus's ear means that he was going for a death blow. Je Peter, in front of Jesus, stepped in front of Jesus, took out his sword, and literally tried to cleave the man's skull in two with one blow. So either Malchus was wearing a helmet that left his ear exposed or Malchus moved just the right way at the last second to make it a glancing blow off the side of his skull. Jesus immediately commanded Peter to stop. Look at verse 51. No more of this. And then imagine this. Our Savior reaching down on the ground, picking up the bloody ear putting it back on Malchus's head with his divine hand and healing him. Right there. Right in front of everybody. As Jesus was about to be arrested, he gave the mob that came for him proof of his divine power. Again, the religious leaders and the Romans, they had come out in force prepared for a fight, but Jesus very clearly wants none of that. His kingdom would conquer through sacrifice. It was true then and it's true now. And, and this is where I think it is so important for us to go to the parallel passage in Matthew and hear what Jesus said to Peter immediately after the healing uh, of Malchus's, after, after healing Malchus's ear. If we go to Matthew 26, again, verse 51, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Verse 52, and then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And so think about what, what Jesus says here in the midst of this incident. First, he tells Peter to put his sword away, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus had not come to establish his kingdom by force. That would just result in a violent bloodbath with him being labeled yet another Jewish insurrectionist. 
And so therefore, he also did not condone Peter exacting some sort of vigilante justice, no matter how loyal the intentions of his heart were. Secondly, Jesus said there in the Matthew passage, he didn't need Peter's intervention to begin with. He could take care of himself if he wanted to. He says there, I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Do you know how many many angels there's 12 legions of angels? That is 72,000 angelic warriors. Jesus could have prayed that prayer, 72,000 angels arrive on the scene. And if you remember your Old Testament history, just one angel is enough to decimate an entire army. In 2 Kings chapter 19, one angel wiped out 185,000 men in one night. In other words, Jesus could have appealed to his father and literally had the entire Roman Empire as well as all of the corrupt leaders of Israel slain in a matter of moments. Peter's efforts were insignificant in comparison to the Lord's power. And his actions were also disobedient. Thirdly, Jesus made his third point using another rhetorical question. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You know, on three previous occasions in the Gospel of Luke, we have Jesus telling his men that it was necessary that he go and suffer and die in Jerusalem and rise from the grave. They obviously did not understand fully what he was speaking of, but they did know it was coming, and, that they, and they also knew that Christ was determined to complete this course of action. Peter was placing himself in opposition to that divinely revealed purpose once again. He was right back where he was in Matthew 16, where he made the critical profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then after Jesus told him he was going to suffer, Peter pulled him aside and began to rebuke the Lord that he had confessed. As we talk about this passage here in Luke, brothers and sisters, we see Peter had good intentions from a perspective. But as you've heard it said before, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. By doing what he thought was the courageous thing, Peter was setting himself against Christ. Judas was an intentional pawn of Satan this evening who acted in spiteful unbelief. Peter was an unintentional pawn of Satan this evening because of his own foolish pride. Because of his pride. And once again, I ask us, brothers and sisters, could that be me? Could that be you? Could that be any of us? You know, it's kind of like the, the guy who's so certain of his own ability. He's, he's an athlete of athletes. He can do anything. And as the wide receiver on his football team, he's quick to get the ball, but he's running for the wrong end zone, right? Not realizing that he's on his way to score a point for the other team. That was Peter. That's how pride blinds us. Our pride veils our view of Christ and it leads us to a place where we feel justified in running with our own desires and our own perspectives. Only too late do we realize we're running the wrong way. We are serving the wrong master. We must set our minds on God's interests, not ours. Once again, consider Christ. He had all the power of the Godhead. He could have called down those 12 legions of angels. 
but he always acted in submission to his father. You think of when he was being tempted by Satan, all the different ways that Satan tried to tempt him to to misuse his power and his position and authority in a self-serving way, in an unholy way, and yet Christ would not. He was utterly dependent, utterly submitted to his Father's will to do what his Father had sent him to accomplish, to speak the very words that his Father had given him to speak. Jesus acted not merely with good intention, but with wise discretion, self-control, and righteous obedience. And brothers and sisters, he did this for us. Jesus lived the life that we could never live. We who continually fall short of the glory of God deserve only death and wrath and judgment. Jesus Christ satisfy God's divine requirements. At the end of Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told the people that were listening, you listen, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's God's standard and all of us fall short, but not Jesus. He's perfect, perfectly submitted, perfect intentions, perfect follow-through. And he did this for you, for you, Christian. And for you, sinner, if you will trust in him. Remember back to the words Billy, Pastor Billy read from Psalm 2. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you are without Christ, the wrath of the son waits at the door for you. A wrath that will cast you into the everlasting torment of hell. But kiss the Son. In faith, true faith, repentance, kiss the Son. In all who take refuge in Him, you will be blessed. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He is your only means of salvation. Submission to Him is the way of life that leads to joy and contentment, and truth, and life. Don't follow the impulses of your heart as Peter did. Because following the impulse of your heart may just put you in obstinate opposition to the God of your salvation, to the God of the universe. That takes me third and finally to the sovereign resolve of Jesus The sovereign resolve of Jesus. Pick up at Luke 22, verse 52. With verse 52, Jesus turns his attention from Peter back to the mob. They were all standing there before him ready for a fight. Peter's outbreak of violence had no doubt stirred them up. But then they had seen Jesus stop Peter and heal Malchus. What? He's healing one of the people that came to arrest him? They're struck by that, no doubt, but they still had a job to do. They still had to arrest him and return with him to Caiaphas. And it was then that Jesus spoke to them. He said, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? In other words, if I could give you the Sean Merrithew translation here, am I so dangerous a criminal that you would have to come out with all these people and weapons? And then he continues, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. With that statement, Jesus is chastising them for their cowardice. We know from the past few chapters of Luke that Jesus had been very publicly ministering in Jerusalem over the past several days. 
He came into the city hailed by the masses with cries of Hosanna, and they didn't arrest him then. The next day, he came into the temple and cleared the merchants and the money changers out in a very forceful fashion. They didn't arrest him then. For the next couple days in a row, he he sat right there in the temple grounds, teaching, answering questions, even openly confronting the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And they didn't arrest him then either. Why? Well, it tells us in several places that they wanted to seize him, but they were afraid of the people. They were cowards. The high priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, even the Romans, they were cowards. They knew what they were doing was wrong, so they schemed and they plotted to find an opportune time under the cover of darkness to do what they were afraid to do in broad daylight in front of the people. They are an embodiment of what it says in John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. These men were of the darkness. And that's why what Jesus had to say to them that night really didn't matter to them. They went right on with their diabolical task. They arrested him, but in doing so, they were fulfilling exactly what Scripture said would happen. This is what Jesus meant at the end of verse 53. Look at the last phrase of our passage. Verse 53, end of that verse. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Even though the Son of Glory was about to face his darkest hour, even though he was about to be mocked and beaten and tortured and murdered by godless men, the sovereignty of God was not unseated. On the contrary, the sovereign hand of God was orchestrating every circumstance, every event, every step to bring about the redemption of his people. For this hour, darkness ruled. But even this mob served the purpose of God in heaven. Did you ever stop to think about that? Even a mob, a faithless mob, served the sovereign purpose of God in this moment. Acts chapter 2, Peter says this. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God was sovereign, even in this arrest of Jesus. Jesus knew it, and he was content in his own heart to complete his Father's purpose to submit himself to it, as unjust as it was. Brothers and sisters, if God was sovereign over the sufferings of his own Son, do you think he's sovereign over your sufferings as well? if he orchestrated every event of his son's life and ministry toward a perfect divine purpose, do you think he has orchestrated all the events of your life to the same? Even your heartaches, even your hurts, even your betrayals, are those not under the sovereign umbrella 
of your Lord? When you are in darkness, do you understand that Christ is your light? When you find yourself in your darkest hour, do you, do you have confidence that he's just setting the stage for yet another incredible victory? Because that's what's going on. That, that's what that beautiful ro- truth of Romans 8, 28 tells us. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And I know this has been a continual refrain. I talked about the same subject in our sermon last week, but as we talk about the passion of the Christ, as we talk about the sufferings of our Lord, this is exactly the message we are meant to hear again and again and again. Child, you are not forsaken. Child, I shall not let you go. You shall not be overcome. The things I have put in your life, I have put there for your good and my glory. Trust me. Follow me. Do not give yourself to your own, your own sinful inclinations and intentions, but trust me. Do not lose hope. Do not give up. And remember when you do stumble. Remember when you do lose faith. Remember when you do fail in the moment. Remember in those times when you do get selfish. Rather than submitting yourself to the Lord, remember at those very moment of your failure that you have a Savior who fought the good fight of faith all the way to the cross and through the grave to the halls of heaven. You have a Savior that forgives you and intercedes for you. And when your faith is weak, He will be strong for you. That is your Christ, your King, your Lord. I go back again to the song that we sang last week. It's just so applicable. When I fear my faith will fail. What? He will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, what? He will hold me fast. He will. He will hold you fast if you are His. So trust in Him. Rest in Him. Lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He, He will direct your paths. Let us pray. Father God, You are so, so good. We fail, Lord. I fail. How glorious it is to know, Lord, that even our failures are redeemed by our sovereign Lord. How glorious it is to know that you are working, Lord, through all these things to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. And Lord, when we stand there, when we stand with you in eternity, free from this body of sin, free from this world and and the grips of Satan and temptation of our own flesh, when we stand with you there, then we will know, then we will confess that these are but light and momentary troubles. May all praise and glory and honor be to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.